There's a few things in life that get us angry like a great injustice. There's something about our sense of morality that kicks in, isn't there? When we see something that's clearly unfair. A few examples, if you can't see. You can see on that screen. <laughs> Thinking back to 1986. I'll try and think back. I was only three at the time. But Maradona, Diego Maradona, the hand of God. Remember? England in the World Cup semi-final. Barbara's got a big scowl on her face. She took, she took it hard. Diego Maradona scored the winning goal for Argentina with his hand. And he cheated. And England got robbed. Absolutely robbed. That's a great injustice. And people are still angry about it right now. Quite rightly too. Because he's not at all, I don't know if you ever heard of Maradona speak about it. He's not at all repentant. He actually said, he was the one who came up with the phrase hand of God. That shows you the humility of the man. Great injustice. Well, this one, this will be a, a, uh, something you probably don't know about, but this, this is a, a, a criminal case that goes back to the 1600s called the Camden Wonder. It happened in Chipping Camden. It's a wonderfully named place down in Gloucestershire. Very nice, is it very nice? <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Oh no, I'm not going to be rude about Gloucestershire. <laughs> oh, you think it's a lovely place? It's fantastic. Um, was that, was that a tour Gloucestershire? I don't know. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so. There was a guy called William Harrison, and he went missing, and found were his clothes uh, covered in blood and with a, 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 a tear in, as if he'd been stabbed. And his servant John Perry firmly believed that, he, that, that his brother and his mother, who were also part of William Harrison's staff, had conspired to have him killed so they could they could inherit his fortune. And so he reported his mother and brother to the police, and he ultimately confessed himself that he'd given his mother and brother the idea to carry out this murder. But his mother and brother completely denied it. We had nothing to do with this. I don't know what he's on about. And in any case, there's no body. So how are you going to prove there's a murder? Anyway, over the next year, the trial took place. And unfortunately, the Perrys, all three of them, including John, were executed. The only problem was, a year later, William Harrison turned up. (laughs) He came back. He'd actually been abducted by pirates, believe it or not. Uh, and was away and managed to stow away on a pirate ship, come back to, uh, come back to England. What an injustice. These three people were killed, executed for murdering a guy who hadn't even died. That's something insiders should say, that's so wrong, isn't it? How can we, how, how did that, how did that happen? That these guys were put to death when there was obviously not enough proof for something that they just didn't do. And what about more recent one? And a, one that's very prevalent here in Liverpool. One of the great injustices, the Hillsborough disaster, and what happened after that, with the the way that the, the newspapers and the government and the police covered all sorts of stuff up. And actually, this city has felt that injustice, hasn't it, deeply over the last thirty years? It's been something that, quite rightly, has has pulled at people's sense of morality and, and rightness. And, and this is not fair. This is unjust. And thankfully, now. We're, we're getting to the point of justice and, and, and there's been apologies and there's, there's criminal cases going on, all that sort of stuff. But man alive, that has, that is something that has really got people going, hasn't it? That if, especially the Hillsborough families were left with this huge sense of injustice and they would not let go of it until they got that justice. Something in us cries out when we hear these things. We want justice, don't we? If you've ever been a victim personally of an injustice, no matter how small or trivial, doesn't it feel horrible? It feels awful. Just It just gnaws away. <clears throat> and now in our series on, on the Gospel of Mark, we've reached a crunch point. And we're going to see 
a great injustice play out. Matt brought home brilliantly last week uh, the immense pressure and anguish that Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane, just as he was praying with his disciples and was ultimately arrested. And today we're going to see what he endured next, which was a series of humiliating, unjust, unfair trials, where in fact the outcome was decided before they'd even began. In fact, the Gospels tell us that Jesus didn't just face one trial, he faced six trials in the space of nine hours. Jesus was tried six times. He was tried three times by different groups of Jewish people before the judge Annas and then Caiaphas, the high priest, and the whole Sanhedrin before being handed over to the Romans where he was tried by Pontius Pilate and then Herod and then back to Pontius Pilate. Six separate situations in nine hours where Jesus was put on trial. And not one of them, not one of them, I would argue, was a fair trial. The Gospel of Mark, as we've seen, it gets to the point. It's the shortest, sharpest, hard-hitting gospel there is. And so he doesn't go through all six of the trials one by one in order. He kind of groups them together. He kind of groups together the Jewish trials and he groups together the Roman trials. And we're going to see what he says about them this morning. And there's lots to read this morning. So we're going to, I'm going to rather than reading out a huge chunk of scripture at the start, we're going to go through it piece by piece just to, just to really try and help it to sink home. So let's start. We're going to dip into Mark. We're going to pick it up at chapter 14. Verses 53 to 54. It says this, they took Jesus, these are the guys who've just arrested Jesus, they took him to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and there he sat with the guards, and he warmed himself at the fire. Now this is quite a gallery Jesus is facing, isn't it? He's paraded, he's brought in front of the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law. All of them, all of the top dogs of the Jewish faith are there. And Jesus is completely alone. His followers have done a runner. They've fled in terror and fear at Jesus' arrest. Peter is the closest. He's managed to kind of follow at a distance, and he finds himself in the courtyard outside where Jesus is being tried. But Jesus is completely alone. And that straight away, doesn't that strike us as not being quite right? This does not sound like a fair and impartial jury, does it? In fact, these people who are gathered are the people that throughout Jesus' ministry, as we've read in Mark, they've been looking for every opportunity to trip him up, to trap him, to catch him in saying something he shouldn't say or doing something he shouldn't do so that they can get rid of him. And now, without any defence, no solicitor, no witnesses for himself, no supporters. He's faced with all of them. How intimidating that must have been for Jesus, with no one in his corner. And what's more, this trial is actually illegal, according to the Jewish law, because it's taken place at night. We know it's nighttime, because Peter has to keep warm by a fire in Israel in April. You don't need a fire to keep you warm in the daytime in Israel in April. And we know that Jesus was arrested at night time and he goes straight there. So it's a nighttime trial. But the thing was, the Sanhedrin, which is the body of, of those who make the, the big decisions, the court of Israel, had a rule written down in the Talmud, which is one of the ancient, ancient Israel, Israelite texts, that they were not to convene between the evening sacrifice and the first sacrifice in the morning. They were just not to meet. You do not meet between those two times. And yet somehow they've decided it's okay to grab Jesus, to throw him in front of this huge 
gallery of people who can't stand him and put him on trial. Straight away, before we've got to anything else, can you see the injustice of that? That's not fair. And Jesus was subjected to it. He wasn't given a proper public trial. This is a secret nighttime interrogation under false arrest. Why do I say false arrest? Well, look at the next bit. This is verses 55 to 59. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. And then some stood up and gave false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Look, first and foremost, we know this is a false arrest because the Bible tells us that Jesus is a sinless man. He never did anything wrong. So we know straight away this is a false arrest, don't we? Because we know that he couldn't have sinned. But then this also tells us that after he's arrested, the chief priests and the Sanhedrin are desperately looking for evidence to put him to death. They haven't got any. They've arrested him and then they're trying to find something to worthy of arresting him for. That's just wrong. You can't arrest someone when they've done nothing wrong and then try and think of something that, that will, that will make him guilty. That should set alarm bells ringing, shouldn't it? In any legal proceeding. Surely the purpose of a trial is to try and determine innocence or guilt based on the evidence of the witnesses presented. But there was no evidence when Jesus was arrested. And when it comes to a trial, we have this biased and intimidating group of high-powered religious figures desperately trying to find a reason to kill the man that they dislike and fear. They're not trying to determine innocence or guilt based on the balance of evidence. They've already decided, we want this man dead. And so we will find a way to do that. That is not a fair trial. That is an injustice of the highest order. And then when they can't find anything, they make it up. They make it up. Many testified falsely against him. Haven't got any evidence? Just make it up. Just invent something. Tell a few lies. It'll stick. There's no one to defend Jesus here. It's, all, it's only us. We all want the same thing. We'll just make it up. No one's going to stop us. And this isn't just one or two people. It says many, many stood there in this place of like Jewish authority, a religious place, and just barefaced lied to try and get Jesus killed. Mark goes into detail on one of the accusations, and we can see just how ridiculous this is. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now, first of all, that is the weirdest terrorist act I've ever heard of. I will destroy that temple, and then I'll build it again for you. <laughs> I mean, what, what would Jesus be trying to do there? If that, if that was what they actually thought, that he's going to destroy our temple, oh, but he's going to build it again for us. Like, that's a weird thing to be, to be worried about. But actually, we know exactly what Jesus said, because it's reported in the Gospel of John. And his words were, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. That's what he said, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. So first of all, he doesn't say, I will destroy the temple. He says, 
if you destroy this temple, not me, you destroy this temple, I'll raise it again. But even more importantly, he wasn't talking about the temple. He's talking about his body. He's talking about himself. John even says, verse 21, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. He's saying, if you kill me, I will be alive again in three days. And in court, they're saying, he said he's going to destroy the temple. It's just a complete falsehood. And it says their testimony didn't agree. They couldn't make this stick. And yet, the accusations come. It's a huge injustice. Let's move on to verses 60 to uh, 64. The high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the father, of the mighty one, sorry, and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Jesus alone, defenseless, with no help, maintains a dignified silence through most of this. It's hardly worth even trying to defend himself when all these testimonies are coming against him which are false and actually don't even agree with each other. By his silence, he's done enough because they disagree with each other anyway. They prove themselves to be false. But then the crunch question comes, the direct question from the chief priest, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed one? And Jesus tells the truth. Yeah. Yes, I am. And he refers to scripture. He refers to the, 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 the quote there of, you will see the son of man. is from Daniel, a text that would have been very familiar to the guys in the Sanhedrin. He says, look, I am the fulfillment of this. You will see me coming again. Sitting at the right hand of God in heaven, you'll know then. You'll know then, all right, that I am the Son of God. He tells the truth. He tells the truth. But this seems to be the admission that the Sanhedrin needed. Having, having thrown everything at him and none of it sticking because they couldn't even agree with themselves. The chief priest suddenly tears his clothes and declares it, essentially, an open and shut place, uh, case. Why do we need any more witnesses, he says. And Jesus is condemned in this moment as being worthy of death. But what kind of court is this? Where are the witnesses called for Jesus' defense? Where is his chance to corroborate this? I mean, naturally, these guys had spent the last three years seeing what Jesus has done. He was followed by huge crowds of people who saw him do miracle after miracle. And teach incredible teaching after incredible teaching, with all of which spoke to him being the Son of God, actually. All of which proved that he is who he says he is. And yet in this court, this court, in inverted commas, there's no opportunity to present that evidence. There's no witnesses called to say, okay, what about your side of the story, Jesus? No, as soon as he says, I'm the Son of God, suspiciously, quickly, the case is drawn to a close. He's guilty. He's condemned on the grounds of who he says he is without any consideration being given 
as to whether that actually not be true. He says he's the son of God. And these guys don't even give it the time of day to think, well, maybe, maybe we need to listen to this claim. Maybe we need to investigate this further. No, that's blasphemy, and now you deserve to die. It's horrendous. It's a huge miscarriage of justice. And it's made worse by what happens next, verses 64, 65. This crowd of religious leaders, these chief priests and scribes, what do they do? They condemn him as worthy of death, and then they spit at him, they blindfold him, they strike him with their fists, they taunt him, they say, prophesy, and the guards took him and beat him. What sort of court case is this? What sort of trial is this? This is horrendous. It's disgusting. It should make us angry that this happened to our Saviour. Next, we move on. We move out of this Jewish setting and now into the Roman setting. We're into chapter 15 now. We're going to skip the very end of chapter 14 into chapter 15 now. It says this, verses 1 to 5. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, they led him away, and they handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You've said so, Jesus replied. And the chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate answered it, asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply. Pilate was amazed. So it's morning time now. And the Sanhedrin have led him to Pontius Pilate. Why? Well, because they don't have the power to do what they want to do with Jesus. They've just condemned him as worthy of death. But actually, in the law, and under their jurisdiction, they weren't able to put him to death. The only thing the Sanhedrin could sentence someone to death for was for trespassing in, a, in, in some of the, the private areas of the temple. Jesus hadn't done that. They had no jurisdiction to sentence this man to death. So what do they do? We'll go to the Romans. They know how to kill people. They'll be happy to put this guy to death. The problem is, when they get to Pontius Pilate, the stuff that they're claiming about Jesus, it's actually a fairly little consequence to Pilate. He's not a religious man. He's not a Jew. So Jesus saying, I'm the Messiah, Pontius Pilate's like, all right, fine. That's what you say you are. You know? Doesn't particularly bother me. I'm a Roman. I've got my own gods anyway. Doesn't really bother me. What he is concerned, though, is the idea that Jesus could be a king. If this guy's proclaiming himself to be king under the Roman Empire, then that is something that Pilate's worried about. So that's why the question he asks is different. He doesn't say to Jesus, are you the son of God? He says, are you the king of the Jews? That's where, that's where Pilate's priorities lie. Jesus, in response, simply confirms, well, that's what you're saying. You've used that term. Judge for yourself. But Pilate knew that only five, six days earlier, Jesus had entered Jerusalem on a donkey. And that as he'd done so, the people had lined the streets and crowned him as king, effectively. They'd shouted, Hosanna, praise be to God. This is the king. He was welcomed like a king. So Pilate had an issue here. This guy... Is he claiming to be a king under my jurisdiction? The Jews are subject to me. I've got a king over them. That's Herod. Now this guy's coming in. I've appointed Herod. I'm not having this guy coming in and saying he's king. 
And so he asked the question. But Jesus' answer leaves him with, you know, Jesus doesn't say, well, I'm saying that. He says, no, you're saying that. What do you think? And then the chief priests can't keep themselves quiet. So they come in and they repeat again their many accusations to Pilate. They accuse him again of many things, it says. And Pilate says to Jesus, says, mate, maybe not mate, Jesus, all these accusations, have you got anything to say? I mean, they're giving it to you both barrels here. They're accusing you of all sorts of stuff. What's your defense? He just doesn't give one. He doesn't give one. He says, Pilate's amazed by this, the dignity, actually, that Jesus showed. If it was any of us being put into the situation, how would we be responding? Do you think you'd, you'd suffer in silence? Or do you think you'd be speaking up and saying, hang on, this is wrong. This is an injustice. All oh, this is, it's, this is a complete and utter nonsense. And yet Jesus, with great dignity, took it. We sang that song this morning, didn't we? It is well with my soul. I believe Jesus had great peace in this moment. He knew the purpose of all this. He knew why this was happening. And he was able to stand there and say, okay, this is horrible, but it is well with my soul. I know why this is happening. I know what I must do. And that amazes Pilate. So it's a very unnatural response. And yet, here we see in the next part what happens next. This is 6 to 15. Now it was custom, sorry, 6 to 12. Now it was custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who committed murder in the uprising. And the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing that it was out of self-interest that the priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Well, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him! And wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and he handed him over to be crucified. Here we see the terrible weakness of Pilate and even more injustice. He has a plan. He has a plan to worm out of this. He knows that there's a custom. It's Passover time. He knows there's a custom that the Romans will release a prisoner at Passover time. It's just a custom that they do at this time of the year. And he thinks, well, obviously, these guys welcomed Jesus in as the king, as his king last week. So I know he's done nothing wrong. So if I say, look, don't forget I can release someone, they'll obviously say, oh yeah, release Jesus. He's the king. He's the guy we welcomed in. That's his plan. I'll just release, I'll get them to release Jesus. Then I don't have to make a decision. They can do it for me. But he reckons without the devious and foul play from the chief priests, they stir up the crowd to turn on Jesus. And these guys cry for the release of a murderer, Barabbas. And not only do they cry for Jesus to take Barabbas' place in prison, they cry for him to be crucified. 
Pilate knows that this is an injustice. He knows. He says, why? What crime has this man committed? He knows that this is wrong. But actually what we see is that Pontius Pilate cares less for justice than he does for his own popularity and his own ease of life. He gives the crowd what they want. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, he released Barabbas. And the great injustice is complete for now. An innocent man found guilty on complete false charges by an illegally assembled kangaroo court and sentenced to death by a cowardly leader who knows he's innocent. It's disgraceful. Jesus went through that. It's horrendous. It's disgusting. And yet, you know what? I believe there's a far greater injustice that takes place that we need to think about. What happened to Jesus in his trial is horrific and unjust. That a completely sinless and innocent man will be sentenced to death in the most humiliating and painful and barbaric way possible. And we'll, we'll focus more on the, on the death and resurrection of Jesus in, in the coming weeks. But you know, the Bible tells us about another huge injustice, which I think is even more controversial and more scandalous. You see, in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.10, the Bible says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for us, for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. You, know, you may not realise it, but each of us will have our day in court. The Bible teaches us that God is a judge. He's a fair and honest judge. But one day, every human being, every single one of us will stand before him and be judged for what we have thought and what we have said and what we have done in our lives. And we will face a fair trial. But unlike Jesus, we will not be able to stand there and claim innocence. The Bible tells us, Romans 3.23, very simply, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. Every single one of us. It's huge. God is a perfect judge and he calls it as he sees it. And when he looks at our entire lives... There is not one single one of us who can say that we've never sinned. To sin, if you, if you wonder what that word means, it's to miss the target, to go astray, to, to do something that does not meet God's standards of perfection. To rebel, to, to err. So when the question is asked of whether we're guilty, the only possible answer can be, yeah, we are. Every single one of us. There's, there's none of us who can stand in front of God and say, well, look, God, if you weigh it up, I did more good than bad. I can't stand before God and say, God, you know, yeah, I did some bad stuff. But look, I've, I've been a leader of a church. So that's got to count for something, right? You know, I've stood up and preached a word. I've, I've done lots of nice things. I've given lots of support to people. Read my Bible quite a lot. So, like, you know, if you stack it up, you know, really, God, surely you'll, you'll let me go. Actually, no. No. God can only judge us by what we've done. And we are sinful and we fall short. I've, I've fallen short this week. 
There's been times this week where I've had to repent and confess sin before God and recognise my weakness and recognise my, my fallenness and the fact that that verse in Romans is absolutely true. I fall short of the glory of God. And so when, when we're asked that question, are we guilty before God? The only possible answer can be, can be yeah, we're guilty. In fact, some of the things we've just been disgusted with in the trial of Jesus, some of those things we've just been pointing out and saying, isn't that shocking? We're probably guilty of ourselves and our lives. We've just been disgusted at the false testimony given by those people in the court. False testimony, lying. Any of us ever lied? <laughs> Any of us? Yeah, I think we probably have. Probably a fair few of us. Even a little white one. We're guilty. We've sinned. What about self-interest? The passage says that Pilate knew it was the self-interest of the chief priest that was putting Jesus on trial. Self-interest, putting yourself first. That was the whole reason the chief priest wanted Jesus gone. He was a threat to them. Selfishness is a sin. Ever been selfish? Ever put yourself before someone else? Ever thought of yourself a bit more highly than you ought? It's a sin. We're guilty. What about Pilate? Wanting to please the crowd more than he wanted to do justice. Ever been guilty of playing to the gallery? Of peer pressure, of doing something that you knew was wrong, but you knew that it would please more people to do that, to make that choice, even though you knew that actually deep down, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I decided to crowd please instead of pleasing my Father in heaven. We're guilty. That's just a few examples of the way that we might have sinned just from this passage. But there's countless others throughout the scripture. Lust, adultery, theft, jealousy, murder, worshipping any other idol other than God. We have to face it. We're sinful. And so, if I stand before God and he calls me a sinner, that's fair enough, I think. Not really any injustice there, is there? It's a fair call. It's a fair shout, God. You've, you've got me. We're guilty, and we deserve the consequence of our actions. And yet, here's the injustice. Because of Jesus, the guiltless one, because he endured that unfair trial, because he went to that unjust cross, because he died that scandalous death, God forgives us. Jesus suffered the indignity, the humiliation, the stress of six trials in nine hours, including being spat on, beaten, mocked for us. He went on to be brutally executed for crimes he never committed. And he died that death as a sacrifice for us. He took the punishment that we deserve for our sin, even though he committed no sins at all. So the great injustice is that when God looks at us from his judgment seat, instead of seeing a sinner, he sees someone covered by the sinless covering of Jesus. He sees someone absolutely covered and washed clean by his sacrifice. He doesn't see our sin anymore. He sees the sinless sacrifice of his son. 
Church, that is an injustice of epic proportions. He would look at us and not see the bad things we've done, but see the goodness of his son. Because Jesus got what he didn't deserve, God gives us what we don't deserve. Instead of judging us as guilty, he calls us justified, righteous, set free for eternal life. That verse in Romans that we just read, for all sin and fall short of the glory of God, it's immediately followed by something beautiful. And I'm going to put it on the screen, but it's from the message version because it's a, a bit more modern language and I just found it really helpful. But it says this. So imagine you just got that in your head. For all have fallen short of the glory of God, all have sinned. But out of sheer generosity, he put us in right standing with himself. A pure gift. He got us out of the mess we're in. And restored us to where he always wanted us to be. And he did it by the means of Jesus Christ. God sacrificed Jesus on the altar of the world to clear that world of sin. Having faith in him sets us in the clear. God decided on this course of action in full view of the public. To set the world in the clear with himself through the sacrifice of Jesus. Finally taking care of the sins he had so patiently Enjoyed. Do you get this this morning? God wants a relationship with us. Our sin gets in the way of that because he's perfect and we're not and his perfection and his justice demands that sin be punished. But knowing that we cannot achieve perfection ourselves, he sends his son Jesus to live that perfect life on our behalf. He receives the punishment that we are due. And then he defeats death categorically. The punishment, the curse is broken and death has no sting anymore. And it's an absolute scandal, isn't it? We don't deserve this. We're guilty, our fault. And yet God replaces our dirty, stained record of sin with a perfect clean record of his son and it's credited to us as righteousness. Church, we are on the right side of the greatest miscarriage of justice of all time. We don't get what we do deserve, a guilty verdict. We do get what we don't deserve, forgiveness and the assurance of eternity with him. And there's only one thing that we need to do in order to receive that it's just to say to Jesus, you're my king. I want you in my life. I need you in my heart. That's all that's required of us. To accept that we're sinners and that we need Jesus' forgiveness. The Jews, the Sanhedrin, couldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. Pilate knew it, but didn't act upon it. We simply need to accept it. Jesus is Lord. And as soon as we do, we go from being guilty to being not guilty. And we can suddenly approach the throne of God's grace with confidence. Isn't that amazing?